Thank you for praying with me. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles if you've got them with you. If not, you're welcome to use the one that's in the rack and the pew in front of you this morning. Uh, if you are newer with us at Harvest, we have been uh, just recently started a series where we, of sermons where we're walking through the New Testament book of Revelation, and we're going to continue that this morning. This is a book that is trying to help churches understand the reality of the spiritual battle around them that we don't see with our eyes, but it is very real. This book is trying to open our eyes to that battle so that we might understand our place as churches and what our God would call us to. This morning, what we're going to do is uh, look at the last three of seven short letters that the book of Revelation opens with. It starts with seven short letters to seven different churches that were around at the end of the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. We've already looked at four of those letters. We're going to look at the last three this morning. For the sake of time, we'll keep our comments on the first two very brief and just hit the main point, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at the letter to the third church that was read for us just a few moments ago in our service. So we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Starting in verse 7, we're going to look at these first two letters out of order. First, the letter to the church in the town of Philadelphia. That's not where the Liberty Bell is. Uh, this was Philadelphia of the ancient Roman Empire. Secondly, the, church, the letter to the church at Sardis in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And finally, to the letter to the church in the ancient town of Laodicea. In each one of these, we're getting a picture of what Jesus looks for in a church And that helps us understand who God wants us to be as a church, even though we live in a very different part of the world and a very different point in history, because the call of God on his church is the same. And that's why he wrote these letters for us. We aspire at Harvest to be a church that would reflect God's intentions for the church the way that he's laid them out in Scripture. And so whether you're a part of our church family or not, we encourage you to look in Scripture with us and see God's value system, his heart for his church as it is expressed in these letters, and compare that with our own value system and invite the Holy Spirit to change us for the better. We begin in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus, writing through the apostle John, says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now, right away, we start with this image that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's fairly meaningless imagery to modern 21st century American people. But that would have been very vivid and real imagery to first century readers who were the original recipients of this letter. We've mentioned several times throughout our study of the book of Revelation that this book is constantly going back to the Old Testament. Over and over again, there is Old Testament imagery. This is an example of it. This is almost a direct quote of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 22 and verse 22, where the Messiah, 600 years before Jesus was born, this was written, it says the Messiah will be one who will be given the key of David, meaning the key of David's kingdom. And in the context of the Old Testament, that means the key to the kingdom of God. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. That's what the Old Testament said. Well, Jesus comes along now in the first century, in the New Testament, and he says, I'm that guy. I'm the one with the key of David. Meaning what? Meaning, basically, Jesus alone is the one who has the authority to determine, to determine who will enter the eternal kingdom of God, or heaven as we usually call it, and those who will not. 
That's the clear meaning of the imagery and the symbol. He's the only one who's got the key. And if he opens the door of heaven to somebody, nobody else can shut it and keep them out. And if he shuts the door of heaven, nobody else can force it open. He is the one who has the authority to let people into this eternal kingdom. Now, why would that have been a significant image for the church in this ancient city of Philadelphia? Well, the whole letter as it goes on is couched in language of security and insecurity. If I open, nobody can shut it. If I shut it, no one can open Notice that he says uh, down in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And then he says, I know you have very little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia was being directly persecuted as a heretical cult in its day by the large and very influential Jewish synagogue that was in that town. This was a very small church, probably far smaller than Harvest is. Numerically, they were small. They held no real social or political or religious power to defend themselves. All the people who held the levers of power in the government were against them actively. They felt vulnerable because they were vulnerable. And yet Jesus praises them because he says, you haven't caved on your commitment to me even though people are making your life miserable because you're Christians. Now there's a lot of historical imagery that's behind this letter that again would have been immediately meaningful to the the Christians in this town of Philadelphia that isn't immediately obvious to us. Philadelphia as an ancient city was known as, uh, among other places, um, being a little bit broken. And I actually mean that literally uh, and physically broken. It was located in an earthquake-prone area, and when you build buildings out of stones mortared together and you have earthquakes, that's a bad combination. As a matter of fact, there's one ancient historian who said of the ancient city of Philadelphia, quote, the walls never cease being cracked and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That's why the actual town has very few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers out in the countryside because they have fertile land out there. That was the ancient city of Philadelphia. Now, this was completely backwards from the way most first century cities operated. They built walls around cities in those days for security because at night, people would go into the city and they would shut the gates and everybody was safe and secure inside the walls. You could be protected from uh, 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 enemy armies if there was an international conflict or just from marauders uh, and, and bandits or wild animals. Inside the walls was a place of safety. But here was this first century city of Philadelphia where there wasn't a lot of international conflict going on at this time. And so people actually felt safer spending the night out in the fields than they did inside the town. Because you were more likely to have a building fall on your head inside the city than you were to get attacked by a wild animal outside the city. So it was totally opposite. They were safer outside the security zone than they were inside it. And Jesus seizes on that imagery and he says to the church in that town, I know that's exactly how you feel. I know that's how you feel. You are vulnerable to the persecution of a larger and more powerful Jewish synagogue. And notice that he does not promise to remove them from the difficulty that is soon to come, but to sustain and protect them through it. If you drop down to verse 10, he says, Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
This is very similar language to John chapter 16 when he said, he prayed to God, God, I pray, his father, I pray that you would not take our follow, my followers out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. In other words, protect them and give them the endurance to stay at it. That's what he's saying. I will give you power, but you notice it is not power to overcome. It's not power to defeat enemies. It's not political, economic, or social power to defend themselves or right the wrongs that are being perpetrated against them or to end their mistreatment. The power that Jesus promises is the power to endure the mistreatment and not cave in their commitment to Christ. He says, you're doing so well, and your reward is it's going to get even harder. But I'm there for you. I'm there for you. That is Jesus' plan and promise to faithful churches of all times. If you are faithful to me, I will give you the strength, the power that you need to stay that course no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. That's true at all ends of the persecution spectrum. Whether we were talking about, as we just prayed a moment ago, for churches in modern-day North Korea where it's difficult to even assemble without fear of being found out and arrested, the most overt and obvious form of persecution that exists in the world today, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, thinking about the great freedoms that we enjoy as churches in America or anywhere in between. The calling and the message of Christ is the same. And friends, should our freedom of religion in this nation erode in coming years and coming decades, Should perhaps our own government even come to outright oppose our pursuit of biblically faithful Christianity overtly in certain ways? We will simply be getting to the back of a very long line of churches throughout the world that face direct opposition to their pursuit of Christ. And God's call is clear. Endure. Stay at it. Pay the price. And stay faithful. And his promise is also clear. I will give you power that you might suffer well and faithfully to whatever extent we happen to be called to suffer for Christ. So to this first church, this first letter to Philadelphia, he essentially says, blessed are the weak. Here's a weak church doing well. He promises them strength to continue to suffer. Now we move on to the church at Sardis, chapters uh, 3, verses 1 to 6, which is a very different scene. To the angel, he says, of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Remember, this is Jesus talking to a local church. He says, wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now this language too is just charged with 
imagery that would have been immediately obvious to people who lived in this city in the first century. But it's not obvious to us because we don't live in the first century. We don't live in Sardis. Sardis was a town that had been around for a long time. It had been around for centuries, occupied by different empires at different times. And it was actually built uh, at the foot of a a really, really small mountain or a really, really tall hill, however you want to say it. This is actually a picture of modern-day Sardis. Most of the town would have been built around the base of this hill. But up on the top, for centuries, there had been a fortress up there. And as you can see, the further up you get to the top, you run into some really, really steep cliffs all the way around this hill. In fact, this is a close-up that shows you a little bit more of what that was like with just some of the few ruins of these ancient fortresses that were always built on the top still left there. And what you can see there is that those cliffs are sheer, and they're very brittle. Like, it's, it's a bunch of packed dirt and rocks. I mean, it's virtually impossible. Like, if you were attacking this, this city, like, you can't get an army up that. There's only one road that leads up the ridge of the hill to the front gate. And so this fortress was thought to be impregnable. It was unconquerable. It was proverbial in the first century that the fortress of Sardis could never be conquered. Although here was the interesting thing. Twice in its history, it had been conquered. Once about 600 years before the time of Jesus and once about 200 years before the time of Jesus. Both times it was conquered the same way. You know how? An enemy army found a way up those blasted cliffs. Somehow they found some little rabbit track or something, and in the night they scrambled up the cliffs one by one so that by the morning they had a whole bunch of guys huddled outside the walls. And here's the thing. The people in Sardis were so confident that the cliffs around their fortress were not totally unclimbable that they would concentrate all their defenders at the front gate and watch the road. They wouldn't even have watchmen on the walls to see if anybody was coming up. And both times enemy armies just spilled in and conquered the town. In other words, the history of Sardis was one where their arrogance led to a lack of watchfulness, and that was their undoing. And Jesus says to the church in this city, the history of your city is about to become the history of your church. That's why he's using the language of watchfulness. He says, wake up and watch and pay attention, because this church has become complacent. Only a few people, he says in verse 4, were an exception to this rule. He says, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and who will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. But for the vast majority of the church, he says, you've become complacent. You're so sure you're good with God that you're not even paying attention to things anymore. And the result is you've gotten to the place where in the eyes of God, you're already as a church totally dead. You're on life support. And if you don't repent soon, I will come in judgment. Just like those armies over the wall. You see, the problem in this church was a complacency born of arrogance. They were so sure that they were doing well that they had quit trying. And friends, may I suggest in just a brief word of significance for us that this is perhaps a particular danger for churches like ours. It's a particular danger for churches like ours. Especially because we tend to be theologically faithful to God and to his word. That's part of our core identity as a congregation. Now we've seen churches all across the landscape of of America and Europe and other places in the world who have compromised on core theological teachings under the pressure of their cultures. And as a result, they've sort of jettisoned the gospel. They reject God and they drift away from him. And after a while, they're not even churches anymore. And it's really obvious and easy to see that those churches and sometimes whole denominations aren't even trying to pretend that they belong to Jesus anymore or submit to the authority of the Bible. But we know we do. We are serious about trying to make sure that we stay under the authority of God's word. 
as we should be. However, that can lead us to a complacency. Because if any church is totally dead, it's probably one of those churches, right? Couldn't possibly be us. I mean, imperfect? Sure, we're imperfect. <laughs> we have problems. We ought to work on some stuff here and there. We, we got things that we should probably fix and get better at. But we can't just fundamentally fail not being as true as we are to God's word. We would never say it that way. But sometimes that kind of complacency can set in. And pretty soon, we're not even doing the very things God called us to do. He says, wake up. Now, how could, a, how could a church that's serious about God's word in the modern day become so complacent that it dies? Well, that leads us to the third letter where we want to spend a little bit more time because there's more detail given here. Dropping down to verse 14, the church in Laodicea. Actually, in verse, starting in verse 15, Jesus gives his evaluation of the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, let's pause right here because, once again, there's a lot of imagery that would have immediately made sense to the original readers of this letter that Jesus is drawing on to make his point. All this talk about hot and cold and spitting out of his mouth, it sounds like weird. What is he talking about? He's actually talking about water. Uh, the ancient city of Laodicea, this is kind of a topographical map. The orange blob in the middle is the town, modern town of Denizli. It didn't exist back in the first century. But this shows the locations of these three towns that were in the Lycus River Valley. Uh, Laodicea it is in the center. You can see directly north of that is a town called Hierapolis across the valley. And out to the east is the town of Colossae. Now there are three towns in this valley in the first century. But there was only one good source of water in the entire Lycus Valley. It was a cold, clear water spring right near the town of Colossae. That's why they built the city there, and they had a great, constant source of good, fresh drinking water. It was cold, it was clear, and it was good water to drink. Now, up at Hierapolis, on the other hand, they were famed for their hot springs, much like the geothermal hot springs you can find in the Cascades around here. They, have, they still have them today. You can go to this town and actually see the geothermal hot springs with the Roman ruins, and you can sit and soak in the hot mineral waters, and Hierapolis was sort of famous for that in the first century. There was hot water there, and you could go take the cure. Right? Just like today, people understood that you have some aches and pains and physical problems. If you go sit in the hot springs, sometimes that helps, and so people would go to Hierapolis to take the cure. They had hot water there that was useful. Uh, Colossae had cold water that was useful. What did Laodicea have? Nothing. There was no good water source where Laodicea was. And so the Romans piped water in through stone pipes and through Roman aqueducts, the ruins of which are still around. But they piped it in from several miles away from a different set of geothermal hot springs. And by the time the water got to the city, it had cooled to where it was lukewarm. It was also heavy with chemicals and minerals because it was geothermal hot spring water. In fact, the decay or, or the, the residue, I should say, of these uh, pipes have been dug up by archaeologists. Here's a picture of some of the pipes, the Roman pipes that they've actually dug up from this era in the first century. Now, what I want to show you about this picture is these are cross-sections of pipes. That outer kind of white ring, if you're looking at the pipe, well, both of them, the one on the left there, that's the original stone or clay pipe that the Romans laid down. All of that thick stuff in the middle is calcium deposits. It's just disgusting. I mean, it just piled up over the years to the place where some of these pipes got completely clogged because of all the minerals in the water. Here's an even more dramatic shot, a cross-section 
this is a stone that one of these pipes was in. That sort of orangish color is the clay pipe. All of that white in the center is calcium deposit that just built up over the years and clogged these pipes. So you would get to Laodicea and you would go for a drink of water and you'd find this tepid pool of lukewarm stuff that stank to high heaven and it was disgusting to drink. Theologian D.A. Carson notes that uh, Cicero traveled through this area at one point and actually declared that the water in Laodicea was the worst water in the entire Roman Empire. It was just disgusting. It was known to be disgusting. Because you see, hot water and cold water both have some value. But the lukewarm waters of Laodicea was gross. When Jesus says of this church, you are neither hot nor cold, he's not talking about their spiritual fervor, as if I want you to be on fire for God, or I would rather have you be a total atheist or something, as if God wants people to be atheists. That's not what he means. What he means is the church in the town was utterly useless. You're not good for taking the cure. You're not good for drinking. You're good for nothing. And like the waters of Laodicea, he says, when I drink of your worship and your praise, God says to his church, I just want to... I want to wretch. I want to spit you out. It's gross. It's a pretty damning indictment, isn't it? Coming from God toward a church? What did this church do or not do that makes them so disgusting in God's eyes that he would compare them to gross water that nobody wants to drink. We get some hints of it, starting in verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that in fact you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So verse 18, he says, here's your problem, here's the cure. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be truly rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Once again, so much historical imagery going on here. While the city of Laodicea had really bad water, it was also famous for a few other things, and they tended to be more positive. It was renowned for its wealth. It was an incredibly wealthy city, uh, mostly owing to the fact that it was the last city inside the Roman Empire on the main road heading east out toward India. So caravans of traders would leave the empire and enter the empire, and every time they got to the border, they'd have to change their money to the other money, whether they were leaving or coming. And so they would do that at Laodicea. They developed this huge money-changing center. It became a huge banking center, and consequently, all kinds of citizens of Laodicea got filthy rich off of uh, doing the money trading. They were so wealthy, as a matter of fact, that there was a big earthquake in AD 60 that ruined a lot of the town, and the citizens of Laodicea refused the Roman Imperial Disaster Relief Fund. They actually had such a thing back then. They had a FEMA in ancient Rome. Did you know that? I didn't know that until just this week when I was researching this stuff, but they literally did. They, they had funds available from the empire to help rebuild towns that had suffered natural disasters, and the, the citizens of Laodicea rejected it. They said, we don't want your money. Rome, because we got enough of our own. We're going to rebuild it ourselves. That's exactly what they did. And so archaeologists have dug up all of these like buildings and posts where there's these plaques on them that they would say, you know, this gate or this building or whatever was paid for by so-and-so, and it would name somebody who was a citizen back then with our own money. They were proud of it. They proclaimed it. We are wealthy. We are self-sufficient. We don't need anybody's help. 
They were rich and they were proud of it. Secondly, uh, they did have a fairly large clothing manufacturing center there, but there was a particular kind of sheep, apparently, that they raised in this part of the valley that was unlike any of the other sheep in the area. They had um, a black wool that was a little more coarse than normal, and so the cloth that they would weave out of this was notorious. It was renowned for being tough and durable. The black woolen garments of Laodicea were like the, you know, the first century Levi's denim, Right? Maybe not the finest garments you would wear to a high-class dinner party, but if you want something that's going to last a long time as a laborer, you want some of that black wool from Laodicea. That's the good, long-lasting, tough, durable stuff. And so they would export it all over the place. They were proud of it. And lastly, they were actually uh, very well known for their medical center, and particularly an ISAV. I was digging around to find out what they made it out of, and I couldn't find anybody who actually knows. But they had actually developed some kind of eye ointment that became fairly famous. After all, in the filthy and somewhat dirty and, and, and dusty climate of the first century Near East, uh, eye infections were not that uncommon. And, and, you know, if your eyes get infected, I remember the picture that Jordan showed us a couple weeks ago of one of the little patients that our Haiti team just served in Haiti. She had an eye infection, a little baby girl, and eyes just swollen shut and puffy. If that goes untreated, I mean, you can go blind from that. And so people would get these eye infections and they developed a salve that they could put on the eyes and they experienced some success at least of kind of leaching out some of the pussy poisons and, and helping to restore health to at least some people's eyes. Once again, they became famous for it. You get an eye infection, you got to go to Laodicea and get some of their magic eye goop. <laughs> it may help you. And it was there. They were proud of it. You see the theme? Jesus seizes on every one of these well-historically documented facts about this town. And he says the great attitude of smug self-reliance that pervaded the city had seeped into the church in that city as well. He says, you guys are rich. You come from a rich place and you're just a bunch of rich Christians. You got the same smug attitude of self-reliance. He says that despite their pride and their wealth, they're actually poor. Despite their pride in their clothing, they're actually naked and shameful. And despite their pride at being able to open people's eyes and restore sight, they are actually blind because they are relying on themselves and their abilities. He calls for them, once again, to repent. To repent, in verse 18, to buy from him real gold that will last, the riches that only Christ offers Real clothing of pure white, an image we're going to encounter several more times as the visions of Revelation unfold. But that's a reference to the, the purity that God's people will have with him in heaven for all eternity. Total absence of sin and guilt. And finally, true eye medicine, as it were, that will restore their sight so they see their self-reliance as the ugly, disgusting, sinful thing that it is. And instead they bank everything on Jesus. In verse 20, he tells them, I stand at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is actually not primarily directed toward an individual who is not a Christian, inviting them into a relationship with Jesus. Although if you're not a Christian, Jesus does invite you into a relationship with him. That's not what this is talking about. This is actually an indictment of a church. You see, we talked earlier about how in the first century they had walls and gates so that people could go inside the city at night, they'd shut the gates, and that's where security and safety was. 
Well, at this point in history, uh, according to Dr. Don Carson, there was a lot of relative stability in the Roman Empire. There weren't marauding armies running around. And generally speaking, people in this part of the world, cities often didn't close their gates at night. There just wasn't that big a need for it. You might post a watchman, but you didn't really need to close the gates. It wasn't that dangerous. Most towns around here didn't close their gates, except Laodicea. They still did. After all, it was only 30 years ago, they rebuilt those gates and they paid for them with their own money. That's my gate, I bought it, and I want to use it. Thank you very much. The attitude seems to have been, we're, we're such big shots that we got to keep out the riffraff. You know? Everybody else may leave their gates open, you know, the normal peasants, but hey, when sun comes down, we're the rich, wealthy ones, we're going to shut the gates. We have the ability to do it, we have the means to do it, and we're going to do it. Thank you very much. Now, if you were lived in a time when a city did shut its gates and you were traveling to that town and you didn't make it before sundown and you got there, the gates were already shut, you're stuck, right? You're, you're locked out. You got to spend the night outside the city wall uh, hoping that a wild animal or a bandit doesn't come along and, and, and mug you and steal your, your money or whatever. Or you got to pound on the gate and try to convince a watchman that you're really not a marauder and they should open up and let you in. And this is the imagery Jesus is using. He says to this church, you know what you guys have done? In your smug self-reliance, you slammed the gate shut and you left me out in the cold. They're so self-reliant, they don't even need Jesus anymore. And so he says, your self-reliance disgusts me. Our surrounding community as well as our congregation here at Harvest, if we could just be honest, especially word addressed to our members, which is most of us, about ourselves. Our surrounding community and our congregation alike have probably more than an average share of fairly successful, reasonably well-paid, highly educated, competent, professional people in many fields, ranging from medicine to high-tech and engineering and business and many more. These are good things. Education, competence, a good job, a steady paycheck. These are good things. But because of sin in the human heart, these things so often become a temptation towards self-reliance, just as we heard earlier in our service in our reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And even those good things can become our downfall spiritually as we rely on what we can accomplish on our own, what we can figure out on our own, what we can pay for on our own without God's help at all. And it could come to be that a church finds itself doing all kinds of things in ministry without God being involved one bit. It's not the place we want to be. And I know, I know the heart of our congregation. That's not what we want. What's the ticket out of this? How do we avoid all this? As we pull back and wrap up this first section of Revelation, these letters to the seven churches, one thing has become abundantly clear, really two things. There's two responses that are called for, and they're connected. The first is the repeated response to repent, to repent. We've seen it over and over again in these two letters uh, to Sardis, particularly in Laodicea this morning. He calls his church to repent. Be broken. That's where it all starts, God says. Don't just change your behavior. He says, change the heart of self-reliance. Be 
broken. Look at the sin in your heart and be so captivated by it, so disgusted by it, that you are broken over it. That's at the heart of what it means to repent. There's such a beautiful picture of this recently that I just read this past week in an article written by Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you have heard of her. If you haven't, you need to know that name. She's an incredibly accomplished, intelligent woman for many years. She was a uh, self-described professor of queer theory and English literature at Syracuse University. Uh, She was a lesbian in a long-term committed uh, homosexual relationship. She was absolutely against God. She actively, by her own admission, used her position of teaching to promulgate a worldview that was total opposite of everything in the Bible. She hated God and everything to do with him, and she loved her life, and she was very happy until through an incredible series of events that I don't have time to describe this morning, she was arrested by the gospel of Jesus. She gave her life to Christ, Over time, she left a relationship, and she has put herself on a whole path of following Jesus now. It's a pretty dramatic conversion story. Just this week, I read an article that she was writing wherein she described some of her process. Let me just quote briefly from some things that this articulate lady has said. She says, first, to be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap my lifestyle. I died to the life I once loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I thought back then, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? She goes on to say, there is no goodwill between the cross and the unconverted person. The cross is ruthless. To take up your cross means you're going to die. She says, as Christian writer A.W. Tozer has said, to carry a cross means you're walking away and you never come back. The cross symbolizes what it means to die to self. We die so that we could be born again through Jesus. By repenting of our sin, even sins we didn't choose, and putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our salvation. There's more there. Friends, when I read those words this week, I literally wept. Literally. There was water in my eyes. I thought, have I been that arrested over my sin recently? Have you? Because that's what repentance looks like. That's what God calls these churches to. He says, be broken, be watchful, and repent. Secondly, to repent means to then give up what we have been relying on. When we realize we've been relying too much on earthly stuff and not enough on God. Not only are we broken over it, but we give it up. Am I too reliant on my wealth? Well, as we saw earlier, then God's call is give it away. Fund the ministry of the kingdom of God. And that's how you are not too dependent on your wealth. And instead, your heart is tied up in the kingdom of God. Am I too reliant on my comfort? then put yourself in a place where you are less comfortable so that other people may benefit from gospel work. 
I was involved in a community life group here at Harvest a couple of years ago that had that experience. Some of you in this room were in that group. We were a large group. Uh, most of us were pretty well-churched people. We'd been around church for a long time. We loved one another. We enjoyed meeting together. We were together for a couple of years, and then we kept hearing that there were more people in our church who wanted to join community life groups than we had room for groups, but our group was way too big to take anymore, so we kept saying we're full, and after a while, we started talking about that, and we're like, maybe we should multiply through division. We started talking about a very uncomfortable proposition. We're like, what if we split our group straight down the middle and half of us went one way and half of us went the other way? We start two new groups that are both smaller and now there's room for people to join. And friends, I'm going to tell you, those were some awkward and uncomfortable conversations because we're like, we like being together. This is comfortable. We're connected. We've invested in one another and we don't know who's going where, but we know that half of us aren't going to be there anymore. And that was not a fun proposition. I'm so proud of the members of this group because we did it. We did it. We had 16 people in that group. It's a big group. We took eight one way and eight the other. And now several new people in the time since have joined both groups. The people in our group now are getting an opportunity to build relationships and explore what a relationship with Jesus means that they wouldn't have even had in the context of this community had we not made a small sacrifice back then. You see, that's the heart of a giving and extending church. We were at a leader meeting of community life group leaders a few weeks ago, and one of the other leaders had said that their group uh, could, just in terms of group dynamics, take some more people, but the place they were meeting was too small, they couldn't hold anybody, so they were going to change locations so that they could make some more space for people. Thinking, yes, that's it. What inconvenience can I take on so that I'm not making an idol out of my comfort in order to make space for other people? That's who God calls us to be. To repent is to be broken over our sin and to give up what we've relied on. Since this kind of ends a section of messages, not just a single message, I want to end this in a way that we don't normally necessarily do at Harvest. I want to invite us into corporate prayer. Let me explain just for a second what we're going to do here, just because it's a little different. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us all to stand. And I'm going to have some words, the words to a prayer up on the screen. I'm going to invite you to read them out loud in prayer. Pray them together with me in unison. If the words on this screen resonate with your heart and you can say in truthfulness and integrity, yes, that's what I aspire to, then I want us to pray this together. If this is not really representing what you uh, feel or believe, that's fine. You don't need to participate. But may I especially challenge our members to stand together and confess corporately our corporate sin to the extent that it's there. Would you stand with me, please? And let's take a moment and pray this prayer of repentance together. I will lead us in. Just follow along with me, if this is the words of your heart. Jesus Christ, Holy One of God and Lord of the Church, we confess that you are right when you call us wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, and blind apart from you. We are wretched because we're bent to serve ourselves rather than you. We are pitiable because we believe we'll be happiest when we live for ourselves. We are poor because we can't earn eternal life. We are naked because the shamefulness of all our sin is fully exposed before the one whose eyes burn with fire. And we are blind 
because we fail to see your matchless beauty for what it is. Merciful Savior, grant us the true riches of eternal life with you, the true clothing of your own righteousness, and true sight to see that you alone are the source of life. Father, as your people, we stand confessing the fact that we are sinners, born and bred to self-reliance. And in your mercy, you point this out. In your mercy, you give space to your people to repent. In your mercy, you do not merely cast us aside and give us the judgment we deserve, but you came, God in human flesh, as the man Jesus Christ, to take our judgment in our place on the cross that we might have the freedom to repent of our self-reliance and give all to you. God, would you continue to make this church responsive to your spirit, submissive to the authority of your word, Would you infuse our hearts with a passion for your glory and the life that you have put before us and give us a heart of compassion for the community and the world around us that they may know that you have died for them too. We pray that you would accomplish this in our midst, in this church, for your own glory 